Roundtable Osteuropa. Ein Podcast des Zentrums für Osteuropa und internationale Studien. A warm welcome to today's episode. I'm Betty Lujakla and I will be today's host. We dedicate this episode to the Belt and Road Initiative, the most comprehensive unmatched infrastructural initiative worldwide in scale and scope to date. At SOIS, we research China's infrastructural footprint within the context of our project China, the EU and Economic Development in Eastern Europe and Eurasia that I had. Launched by Chinese President Xi Jinping a decade ago in 2013 in Astana, Kazakhstan, the BRI has translated into a trillion-dollar global mega-infrastructural endeavor. China has since then pursued projects in places where no other foreign partner dared or cared. The initiative has mostly focused on advancing connectivity infrastructure, energy and mining infrastructure. But China's growing presence on the global stage has also led into fears, disconnect and myths. To situate the giant that BRI has come to be seen and take stock of the first decade of the BRI, I am joined today by three stellar researchers in our research network, Dealing Reeling, in which also our SOIS project is embedded. In this network, we investigate how transregional infrastructure projects, such as the BRI itself, configure politics, societies and geographies, and is funded by German Federal Ministry of Education and Research. Without further ado, let me introduce our guests. Nadia Ali is a doctoral researcher at the Bonn International Center for Conflict Studies. She's investigating the unfolding of BRI's China-Pakistan economic corridor in the Gilgit-Baltistan region of Pakistan. Tamash Bregovic is a research fellow at the Institute of World Economics in Budapest and currently a visiting researcher at SOIS, studying China's engagement in Central and Eastern Europe. Last but certainly not least, Valentin Krusman is a doctoral researcher based at SOIS and he researches the objectives and developmental impacts of China and BRI-associated infrastructure projects in Eastern Europe and Eurasia. Nadia, allow me to start with you and one of the oldest and more prominent projects associated with the BRI, the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, in short, CPEC. Can you tell us a bit about what CPAC is and what it does do? Yeah, sure. Thank you very much, Beryl. So uh, the Karakram Highway was built by China and Pakistan in a joint venture from 1969 to 1979 for strategic reasons. Lately, the strategic road is featured in new clothes with the rhetoric of development by declaring it the China-Pakistan Trade Corridor. So passing through Gilgit-Baltistan, it is the sole corridor that links Kashgar in China's Indian Autonomous Region to the port city of Gwadar, located at Indian Ocean in Pakistan's Balochistan province. Gilgit-Baltistan is a politically disputed region over the Kashmir conflict between India and Pakistan and is strategically important for Pakistan because it shares borders with China, India and Afghanistan. So in Pakistan, China-Pakistan Economic Corridor is a blend of aid, concessional loans and private investment in a wide range of projects in five major areas. Transport infrastructure, energy, 
industrialization, Gavadar Port infrastructure, and socio-economic development. The CPEC's promise for Gilgit-Baltistan was about increased road and internet connectivity, industrialization, and people-to-people -people contact. For the local people in Gilgit-Baltistan, the Karakrum Highway is not the China-Pakistan economic corridor because it existed since 1979 and the China-Pakistan economic corridor was officially announced in 2015. When CPEC was announced, people expected a large-scale extension of Karakrum Highway, an increase in trade flows, business with Chinese, and socio-economic development of the region, but that has not happened so far. Since the second round of bilateral cooperation between China and Pakistan, or the upgradation of Karakrum Highway from 2007 to 2015, that is actually before the official announcement of China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, the Karakrum Highway in Gilgit-Baltistan has not been improved. This makes people believe that China-Pakistan Economic Corridor is an illusion. At the national level on the affairs related to CPAC, state actors hold centralized power, and there is little role of non-state or civil society actors. For political parties, demonstrating close ties to China and supporting CPAC is a source of political leverage. Pakistan's military has an extensive commercial interest in the economic corridor projects. The economic corridor is thus has become a political leverage in Pakistan. Thank you, Nadia. Um, it is really interesting and I think it ties well to the next question I have in my mind. And that is related with the with the notion or you know more um, a myth of that the BRI is uh, known as China, Chinese President Xi's legacy project, which in itself not necessarily a myth, but that it does not you know uh, that it as if it unfolds in vacuum, but it does not as we know it, and it, it does unfold in diverse social and political contexts. So, uh, Tamash, my next question is for you, and I'm wondering um, what the Budapest-Belgrade railway in East Europe. Um, tells us about these dynamics uh, regarding how the BRI interacts with political regimes and elite interests in host countries. Uh, thanks. Yes, that's a that's a great question. I think it's often assumed that the BRI is essentially about China and Chinese interests, but we have to see that we do have local or host country interests that are by and large compatible with China and what the BRI is trying to achieve. And the Budapest-Belgrade railway upgrade is a good example of that. It's a good illustration of that in, a, in at least two ways, I think. Um, first, we have to see that the Hungarian government, the current one, which came to power in 2010, has been very much reliant on the support of its oligarchs. Uh, these are people working in a variety of economic sectors. Uh, they have various businesses. They have various construction businesses. And one of the conditions of their support towards Orban has been to keep the ability to expand domestically 
and even outside of Hungary as well. The Budapest Belgrade project is a great way of giving that opportunity to these people because let's not forget this is not necessarily a Chinese investment project. This is a Chinese loan that is being given to the Hungarian government which then goes into the pocket of Orban's oligarchs themselves. So we can see in this sense that there is a convergence or if you like a confluence of Chinese interests and those of the ruling government as well. The second illustration of how we can find such a compatibility with host country interests and those of China is that China, because of the BRI, is in some sense implicated in some of the obligations Hungary is facing as a result of its EU membership. We need to remember that the Budapest Belgrade project came under scrutiny by the European Commission in the mid-2010s, and it ended up slowing the project down considerably. Now, the EC stopped short of a full investigation, but this is evidence that it take, takes two to tango, uh, if you like, or it takes three to tango in our case, because the EU needs to be... Um, fine with the project, so to speak. So just as China has an interest in Hungary's compliance with EU law, Hungary also has an interest in showcasing that China is able to build according to EU standards. So these are, I think, illustrations of how we need to understand that there is a mixture of different interests, and the BRI is certainly not just about China and its own interests. Thank you, Tamás. And um, this is really a great point, and it is an, a very key insight that gets so often underestimated. Um, that you know we have the tendency to to equate the BRI projects solely with China or call them Chinese projects. So, Valentin, I want to turn to you, and um, uh, I'm wondering if uh, you can tell us a bit about how Chinese really the BRI associated projects are, based on the infrastructure projects in Georgia. Yes. Yes, thank you, Beryl. So, yeah, uh, so here I'll refer to the case of the Ricotti segment of the E60 highway in Georgia that you and I have been researching. And I think it presents a fairly unique case. Um, there are others, of course, but it's a fairly unique case wherein several non-Chinese financial institutions, so in this case, the European Investment Bank, the Asian Development Bank, and the World Bank, They're financing four different Chinese state-owned enterprises um, with around one billion USD in total in the construction of a fairly complex highway. And when we look at what scholarship and a lot of the public discourses on the BRI have been referring to um, since its launch, this project is quite different. So it's not a China Development Bank or Export Import Bank of China funded project wherein Chinese contractors are, are employed and money stays within a, a Chinese Chinese loop. Um, but instead, the project is funded by MDBs. It also includes EU funding. And in addition to that, the project was designed and its construction is also being supervised and managed by consultancies from, from a number of countries, from Turkey, from South Korea, from Georgia, um, and Italy. There are also workers from Nepal involved. And I think, that, um, coming back to your question, this um, raises a number of questions, but of course, It, the key question here is on whether this project um, is how can how can it be described? Is it a BRI project? I mean, you could say at a basic level, it simply represents Chinese engagement in, in the international construction market. Um, after all, plans for the road they predate the BRI and Chinese involvement in the wider um, E60 in Georgia. But also at the same time, it does reflect what's often associated with the BRI. The Chinese SOEs involved, they describe themselves as BRI companies. They bring in a number of Chinese staff and expertise, associated practices, 
And the project clearly reflects the connectivity dimension put forward in the BRI. The project was also conceived of in a period where there was lots of momentum surrounding the BRI in Georgia. There were lots of announcements, a major high-level BRI conference held in Tbilisi in 2017. And I think what's interesting about the, about the way the chi Chinese um, put forward the project, it's so there's no strong outwards presentation from them of the project as being part of the BRI. Like I remember one of the workers um, telling us that Chinese staff um, in the project, they were saying that we don't use the BRI label here, but yes, it is BRI. Others were also telling us that yes, it's BRI. But at the same time, the project segments, they're listed on the BRI website from the state council and on Chinese media, there's so much talk of, of, of the project for, um, as being linked to the BRI. Um, some of the companies, they call themselves, or they've been referring to their staff as BRI warriors. Um, but like, despite the large number of banners in, Chi in Chinese along the construction, it never really says BRI. The Chinese ambassador to Georgia was also saying that, that the highway provides a key link in the middle corridor um, under the framework of the BRI. So, I, so kind of just to sum this up, China has labeled the project. Maybe it's more as the BRI, maybe toward, more towards domestic than international audiences, but it does see the project as Chinese. But of course, like I said, there's, there's a number of other actors involved and they bring, them with their own, bring with them their own meanings to the project. Um, and they don't really seem to clash with, with, with one another in this case. Um, perhaps uh, most notably the EU itself a key funder. It, it really, it's, they say that the project integrates Georgia with the trans-European transport network, the TEN-T, and extends its benefits to EU partner countries. And it frames the project as supporting Georgia's EU ambitions. The Georgian government themselves talks about they have their own narrative. They argue the highway is critical for for fostering Georgia's economic growth. They talk about transit fees, supporting the development of Georgia as a production hub. But I think it, it goes without saying the government doesn't represent the project to its citizens as Chinese, but rather as something that the government has achieved um, by themselves. It carries much political weight in itself. And I'm sure I'll, I'll, I'll get to speak a bit more about the governance frameworks um, that the project operates in in a moment. But I just want to sum up here that um, that projects where Chinese SOEs are building projects with non-Chinese money, also with Western money, they've been growing in the region. There's a number of examples I could give here, whether it's in Croatia or in Kazakhstan or elsewhere. Um, but I think the case of Rikoti, it really shows how actors from a wide variety of countries, they come together, they attach different meanings to the same project. And even if Chinese actors might be the most visible, it would be very wrong to say that Rikoti is simply a, a Chinese project. Thanks for that, Valentin. I think this is uh, really fascinating, and it, it reminds me of the discussions around, you know, the um, efforts of trying to map the BRI. And then there was the BRI map, and there were many BRI maps. And then we realized that the fact that there is no one BRI map is like part of the maybe a very elusive, you know, BRI and the missing map. And this reminds me, you know, this could be a bit, a bit like the missing label that allows. China to uh, really shape shift with the global uh, geopolitical dynamics of our times and in no time we have seen how uh, the um, full-scale invasion of uh, Ukraine changed really Georgia's landscape and uh, this uh, Rikoti bit really yeah um, just to clarify two things for our listeners um, SOE stands for state-owned enterprises and MDB multilateral development banks 
And um, now, um, so we have talked a bit about um, uh, the domestic uh, policy and, and, and part of narratives, also domestic narratives. Now I want to um, talk a bit about how in general the Chinese projects, but also specifically the BRI projects, become used also as a foreign policy instrument for the host countries. So, um, Damash, I think uh, uh, Hungary's case could be interesting here. How do host countries position and um, reposition themselves in global politics through Chinese engagement? Thank you. Yes, that's, um, that's a great question. And it, it showcases again that the BRI is not reducible to something related to infrastructure. It's potentially less than that, but it's also potentially much more than that, depending on how creative host countries or participating countries can be. And Hungary is a good example of that. Uh, we do know, I'm sure our listeners know as well, that Hungary has been something of a black sheep in the EU in recent years uh, for a number of reasons including its close ties with China and criticism towards the West. Um, since the BRI started in early 2010, um, in the early 2010s, excuse me, it essentially became something of a way out uh, for Hungary. And since that time, the Hungarian government has been intentionally and purposefully positioning itself and articulating itself as a sort of a hub, as we all know many countries do that, participating in the BRI, but this is slightly strange and surprising in the case of an EU member state. The Hungarian government positioning itself at the crossroads of East and West and of building connections across and between these distant spaces. And this is connected to the project itself, to the Budapest-Belgrade Railway project. Uh, there is an argumentation in Hungarian foreign policy discourse that just as the Budapest-Belgrade project is essentially connecting the North with the South, it's connecting the Serbian capital with the Hungarian capital. The responsibility, the responsible behavior of the Hungarian government today is to connect the East with the West in its foreign policy. It's to try to bring together these two creative spaces, despite the fact that we seem to be living in an era of disconnectivity with many talking about the return of a new, the return of the Cold War or the inauguration of a new Cold War, uh, if you like. A second example of how the Hungarian government is trying to uh, recuperate elements of what the BRI is about is this criticism against what it calls the old model of globalization. The old model of globalization, according to which countries participating in the global economy are expected to converge towards a particular social political template, which is obviously about liberal democracy. Now, Hungary has been very critical about that old model of globalization, and for Hungary, the BRI is a signal that this old model is dying and it is being replaced by a new model in which no such convergence, social, political, in terms of cultural values, no such convergence is desirable or necessary. Now whether this transition is actually taking place is for us besides the point, I think. What matters in this case is that Hungary is being creative about how to use the BRI, how to use it for its own effect, for its own use in its own foreign policy. And of course it's not hard to see that Hungary is an example of this transition 
transition in some sense, because the Hungary has been moving away from liberal democracy and its system of checks and balances, but, and this is key, it has not removed itself from the global economy. In fact, the Hungarian economy is still an exceptionally open economy and thus relies heavily on foreign investments and conducting trade with other countries. What is changing is the model in which it's articulating its role in the global economy. And this is something for which the BRI is helpful for the current Hungarian government. Thanks a lot, Tamás. So um, we have been talking um, about different aspects, uh, making slowly our way into <laughs> deeper uh, stage, next stage of the conversation, I think. And I want to talk a little bit about the actual outcomes of these projects um, and whether or not they deliver on their promises. And for that, um, I would like to hear a bit from you, Nadia, from the experience of um, China-Pakistan Economic Corridor. Thank you. Uh, that is an important question. As part of socioeconomic development, China offers scholarship programs to students from all over Pakistan, including Gilgit Baltistan. In terms of internet connectivity that it promised, the fiber optic infrastructure is laid across the region, but the local people claim that it is not accessible to everyone. The infrastructure is used by a commercial unit of Pakistan army and government to provide internet service, but it is expensive and more expensive than the internet services provided in big cities of Pakistan. Moreover, the government grabbed communal land for China-Pakistan Economic Corridor's promised special economic zone in Gilgit-Baltistan by declaring it the government's land on the basis of a law that was implemented by the rural of Kashmir before Gilgit-Baltistan became part of Pakistan. So the local community has filed a court case against the government. In terms of road infrastructure, a patch of uh, Karakrum Highway in Khyber Pakhtunkhwa, it's in another provi province, uh, is being upgraded. So uh, during my field research in Gilgit-Baltistan, while some of my respondents anticipating the negative consequences of the projects, especially the extension of Karakrum Highway and the Special Economic Zone, uh, shared that they were relieved that the projects did not materialize, uh, but many others were disappointed. However, whether after or before uh, CPAC's announcement, uh, but definitely because of China-Pakistan cooperation, road infrastructure has improved in Gilgit-Baltistan and the region has become more accessible to external actors. But it does not imply that connectivity has increased. Increased connectivity or decreased physical distance instead of connecting can also disconnect due to increased political barriers and controls. With the increased accessibility, external investors have entered the region with the motives of exploiting local resources and accumulating wealth especially in tourism sector. Thus, the encounter between powerful state and private actors and the local people who are economically and politically, mar politically marginalized uh, has challenged the local people and is pushing them towards further marginalization. Thanks, Nadia. Um, 
really your insights speak to also our findings uh, from our joint research with Valentin um, from, from Georgia, also from Kazakhstan, but today we are here to talk about uh, Georgia. And uh, with that, I want to uh, ask you, Valentin, to unpack a little bit uh, about, you know, what, what really decides whether these, um, you know, ceremoniously announced projects uh, do contribute to really uh, transport connectivity, maybe increase well-being, you know, accessible and uh, whether or not they actually end up uh, aggravating social injustices in the countries. Can you, um, can you unpack this for us and um, perhaps um, with hints towards uh, re regulatory framework and, and how the governance uh, of these projects play a role? Yes, thank you. That's a, that's a very good question, Beryl. And I think it's very much linked to the previous question as well on how Chinese these, these projects actually are. Um, so it's not just narratives and meanings that make them inherently not Chinese, but also the regulatory framework that they exist um, or manifest in themselves. I mean, uh, these projects, they don't take place in China. Um, and the actors, so the actors in theory, also the Chinese ones, they're, they're bound to the legal and regulatory frameworks of the host country, uh, also to the funding bodies, but particularly the host country and the level in which that host country enforces these laws and regulations. And just to give a few examples with regards to the to the Ricotti section of the E60 again, the project does have its fair share of failures. Um, for example, it's common practice that local workers often don't have labor contracts. They work for a subcontractor of one of the Chinese SOEs, and they often don't know who exactly they're, in theory, um, employed by. And this, um, as I'm sure you can imagine, occasionally leads to issues. And... So while the companies, the SOEs, um, are of course complacent in these practices, um, I mean, they're the ones engaging in a potentially exploitative practice. It's also the, the Georgian government's job to enforce their own domestic labor laws and regulations and hold companies who, um, who breach these um, laws and regulations accountable um, just to ensure that labor rights are not violated. Um, and th this is the case with a number of issues associated with the project. Um, for example, the way that those adversely affected by the construction are treated, whether it's people who need to be resettled due to construction or businesses, vendors losing their income streams, which were dependent on the proximity to the old road. These are all issues that they affect public perception of the project and there are issues which are being treated with um, a degree of or quite a strong degree of negligence and are not being adequately resolved by the authorities. Um, but here, again, it's, it is the Georgian government which is responsible for resettlement schemes, for compensation, for ensuring that the people, that the public is informed of the project and with presenting alternatives going forward. But these things are not being adequately addressed. And the, the majority of issues and problems associated with the project, they're down to the national frameworks that exist. And should the Chinese companies involved be negligent or engaging in illegal practices, it is the host country which needs to um, ensure enforcement. So basically, just, just to kind of sum this up, um, legal and regulatory framework conditions, whether it's of the host country or of the funding bodies, affect how projects materialize. And the importance of these conditions and the major effect that they have on the people affected by the, pro by the project they're important for the public perception of the project, but also for shaping the wider successes and failures. Um, and this also means that projects can never simply be Chinese, because any project is always an interaction between 
actors, local actors are key in this process, of course. Thanks a lot. And um, I'm not just saying this because you're my colleague, but <laughs> we cannot stress this point enough that um, these uh, projects unfold in socio-political, economic, ecological context. And with not digging deeper into these contexts and paying attention to these contexts, that we are also rejecting uh, agency at different scales within the countries too. And this is really important. And um, one thing I want to stress before going on with closing statements is that um, the E60, so Ricotti part of E60 you have been mentioning is also part of the middle corridor that has been hyped so much since the uh, war against Ukraine. And, uh, and it has been it ha hyped as an alternative route to the routes, um, the northern routes that go through Russia. And what it does is um, it, it, it gives an, an urge of uh, looking for speedy alternatives and it may translate, unfortunately, into fast infrastructure. And what fast infrastructure means is uh, obstruction of timely inclusion, inclusion of um, communities that very much need the infrastructure but do not get to uh, have a say in this process. And this is something um, we have to bear in mind. Um, with that... Um, I would like to give um, a chance for closing statements and um, a, a sentence or two what, uh, what you would like to give our um, listeners, East Europe, Eurasia scholars, practitioners, China watchers and infrastructure enthusiasts. Valentin, let's start with you. All right, sure. Um, yeah, so maybe just, just, just to, to close, just to sum up, I'd like to say that the, the, even if the BRI is a Chinese policy initiative, which of course it clearly is, and China does have its interests. Infrastructures, um, like as you as you mentioned as well, but they'll always be based on a collection of actors interacting with un with one another, and are themselves often put forward by the host countries. Power relations between China and other countries exist, and these cannot be discounted, of course. Um, but political, economic reasons in the host country they they will always be critical in shaping successes and failures, whether it's in in in, in Sri Lanka or in Georgia. And then maybe also just to add, BRI loans, they've, they have dried up substantially in the last five years, especially when it comes to Chinese policy bank loans, but it, the infrastructure engagement with China, it's a dynamic space. Chinese actors, they're increasingly able to tap into international capital markets and to develop projects together. And BRI talk is again up in Beijing, so I think there's there's going to be a lot happening in the space in in the in the years to come. We'll have enough to do. We'll have enough to do. Tomas. <laughs> yeah, thanks so much. Um, I want to pick up for a closing statement what you said about agency, which I think really goes back to why the BRI is key and why we need to look at local context. Uh, right now, as the construction is starting on the Hungarian side, there are all sorts of cases with regards to expropriation. Right? People living alongside the tracks, their properties are being bought up by the state. But because the state is the only bidder, the state can afford to offer less than normal market prices. So people are getting ripped off just because this is the poster child of the Orban government and what matters is for the project to come to fruition um, rather than to fail quite clearly. 
that's not China doing, right? That's not China. That's the Hungarian government thinking what it needs to do for this project to come to fruition. So while I think there is a, a lot of literature on how this is connected to China's interests or perhaps the personal interests of Xi Jinping himself, if we want to understand why BRI projects fail or why they succeed and how in particular context, we need to pay as much attention to local context as we do when it comes to China. Those are just my two cents. They're very valuable two cents, Tamás, and um, I am senselessly shaking my head, which our audience is, of course, not seeing, but this speaks uh, very much to the case of um, Georgia as well. Nadia, with that, the last word is yours. Thank you. So, based on my analysis of the unfolding of China-Pakistan economic corridor in Gilgit, Baltistan, I would say it has not delivered what it had promised, and the ground reality significantly differs from what the documents and political speeches tell. Lastly, the local people are clearly not the major beneficiaries of the economic corridor so far. Thank you, Nadia. I guess this is all for today's episode. Thank you for my guests, and uh, thanks for tuning in. Thank you.